Memory verse. Do you have this card? Okay, I know some of you haven't memorized already from two years ago, but we're doing verses 1 through 6. This is 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. You ready? So if you don't have it memorized, it's on the screen. If you, if you do, you can just use your eyelids to separate yourself from that, and you can just say it. Okay, so let's do it together. Ready? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Is that where it stops? Okay, great. We'll do the rest next time. We're in a series over the, over the last two weeks, six weeks total, called The Next Good Thing. And the idea that this is coming out of is that we need to be people increasingly ready to have spiritual perseverance. We need to be prepared to personally handle what faces us so that we can persevere and not quit. And we also need a lot of perseverance because love requires strength, right? One of the things that that Second Peter passage demonstrates is that love is the queen of the virtues and it requires the support of all of them. And in order to be done well, it needs to have a full heart as well as personal discipline. Because love isn't a feeling, nor is it just an action. Love is a virtue. It's a—it comes from the vir in Latin. It's a strength. Love is a strength that has a moral capacity. And so it requires a full heart— like we said in week one, whoever wants to be loved without a full heart, somebody giving them their, the fullness of their heart, it has to be emotional in its nature, but it also has to be strong and actional in its nature, and that has to come out of a kind of strength. And if you don't have a persevering emotional life in God, you can't do that. You can't emotionally persevere yourself, and you don't have what's necessary for the virtue of love to love others. And so in order for us to be believers, to be living in the image of Christ— not just, not just barely, not just in name, but in reality, we have to have a certain kind of gospel emotional resilience, even in times like this. Now, um, I'm also assuming that right now, at this moment in our existence, we, we don't have great um, emotional resilience. And I, I, th- there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, but if you want a very simplified, functional way to think about that, it's this. There's a lot of things in the world that make, that are, that are good things in and of themselves that make really bad gods. Okay, um, they're called secondary things, as Lewis called them. So like your spouse, they're great if they're just your spouse, but the minute they become like a god, like the person you get your salvation and your good life from, you like put way too much pressure on them. You begin to destroy the relationship. They're good. They're a good. They're a good, but they're not a god. Does that make sense? And there's lots of things that are goods that are not gods that we are treating kind of like gods. In modern Western society, two of those things are consumerism and the government. Consumerism and statism. That is, every, that what we get our good life from, that the thing we hope in, the thing that gives us peace in our hearts, the thing that makes us feel like we're a good person, and all those kinds of things, is that we can buy whatever we want, and there's somebody in charge that's going to take care of us. Okay? We can please ourselves, right? We can get the pleasure of the good life, and somebody's going to take care of us. We have the security of the good life. And when COVID hit, <laughs> and the world kind of went nuts, um, our economic system kind of crashed a little bit, and our government is not 
as exemplary as we would like it to be, okay? A lot of us had a lot of complaints already, but it's particularly bad right now, right? And people are kind of at their throats a little bit right now, and that's going to continue for approximately the rest of your life, okay? Probably. It's not going to end in a couple of months, I assure you. So, because those two goods—now, government is a good, right? The Bible says government is a good. God institutes governments among men and women so that anarchy should not reign. And so that people could benefit from the corrupt, disgusting, broken governmental system that is better than it not being there. <laughs> right? And secondly, consumption is good. It's not bad that people have used their ingenuity to come up with ways to enrich each other and care for each other and provide for each other's needs and trade in incredibly complex ways throughout the globe so that you can eat tomatoes in February. Right? Yes, there are environmental problems with it. Yes, there are greed problems with it. But for the most part, human beings who lived hand to mouth for thousands of years get to choose what they eat for dinner, even among some of the poorest places in the world. These are incredible goods, but they are terrible gods. Right? And so the Christian has to always be placing them. Right? The government is a good, but it's also not— righteous. And it's, it's not going to produce justice and righteousness. And it's—and only God stands above that. Do you understand? And in our consumption, it's great to be able to choose what you have for dinner. It's great if this morning you had more than one outfit to choose to put on. That's a wonderful thing. But listen, it's a bad God. It's—it's—thank God for it, right? But don't spend most of your time just thinking, look at how cute you are, you know? Now— <clears throat> given that because we have, without even thinking about it, more emotionally than directly intellectually been treating those things and other things as gods, when those gods began to fail us, it's like when, when um, God says uh, to Israel in the Old Testament, he's, he's like, you know, when armies are attacking you, instead of turning to me, you turn to Egypt. But Egypt is going to be like a staff that when you put your weight on it, it breaks, and the splinters dig and impale your arm. Right? It's like, you're like, oh, my leg really hurts. I need—and you get a stick, and you're like, oh, this will be great. And you put your weight on the stick, your leg's already hurt, and it breaks, and the broken point of that stick goes right through your arm. Imagine that. God's saying, that's what it's like when you put your weight on an idol. That's what it feels like. That's the effect it has on you. He's like, just turn to, turn to me, right? And so the question is, as Christians, how do we do that, right? We feel the effects of our idolatry. We want to repent of our second religion and turn to Christ as our one King and Lord, allowing all these other good things to be goods but not God's, right? So that we can live in the fullness of the perseverance that God can give us. How do we do that, right? And so hopefully you got this as you came in. If you're watching us online, um, I'm hoping it's in notes or something that you can click on. It's going to be—actually, it's, it's on a slide here. I can do this. So— um, and it has on it the six things that we're going to look at over the course of this series that are part of a spiritual life in Christ that can help us experience perseverance and the capacity to thrive in very difficult circumstances. Does that make sense? And I say that not believing that what you're living in right now, for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, this isn't really that difficult, what we're living in right now, relative to the human race throughout the world, synchronically, or throughout time diachronically. We're not really doing that bad. But some of us feel like we're doing really bad. Does that make sense? Now, of these things, number one we did the first week, which is the primacy of the heart. The first thing you have to understand is that God is after the heart, your heart and soul. That is the confluence of your being, what we sometimes call our consciousness, right? It's your thoughts and your feelings and your conscience and your hopes and your experiences and your wounds and 
your friendships and how they support you and all these things, they come to a confluence. That's why I joke sometimes when people are like, so should I hear God's voice in my heart? And I'm like, yeah, amidst the eight or nine other voices in there, right? Like, because the heart is a confluence of multiple influences inside of us. Does that make sense? Including demonic temptations and also God's voice. And it's all kind of in this place. And we just have this word for it called the heart, right? That's the spiritual word we refer to it. And because it's at the center of us, it's the beating center of who we are, right? Now, clinically, sometimes we'll call it something like consciousness. But that's—that really doesn't get at everything, right? But it's, it's who you feel and think you are. It's not just your feelings. It's the confluence of your being, right? And that place is the place that you have to bring under order. It's the place at which faith is exerted or not exerted. It's the place where sin is embraced or the flesh is killed or God is worshipped or all those things happen in that place called the heart. And therefore— The heart has a primacy in human being and in belonging to God. And you have to attend to it and take responsibility for it. A lot of people don't because the heart is filled filled with emotion. And we think emotions are things we experience, not that we create. We feel a relationship of passivity to them, right? We're like, we're like, but they're just my emotions. Well, no, your emotions are connected to your conscience and your thoughts and your experiences and your wounds that you haven't healed and all these other things. And you think you have a passive relationship to your emotions, but that's not really true. And all through the scriptures, God demands we have certain emotions. And there's places in the Psalms where the psalmist speaks to his own soul and tells it how to feel, right? The heart, you have to start with the primacy of the heart. That's what Jesus is after. That's where salvation happens. That's where Christ is confessed. That's where faith is exerted. That's where damnation takes root. That's where your being is lost. That's where the image of God is restored. It's like, it's the center, and you've got to believe that. If you don't believe that, you will be oblivious to the work of God in your life and how human beings develop and function and care and have integrity in themselves. You have to believe in the primacy of the heart, okay? It's incredibly important. Everywhere through the Old Testament, God is always saying, I want you to love me with your heart and soul. Your heart and soul. Right? The second is you have to stand on the gospel's foundation. If you're not believing in the truth of how God has reached out to the human heart in salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ by his divine fatherly providence and by the continuous working of his spirit in the present, then you you just don't have the resources necessary that God has given us so that we can thrive, right? When the scripture in 2 Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need, without believing and understanding the gospel, the very great and precious promises that come from his glorious goodness, you don't—you're not connected to the thing that's meant to help you thrive, right? And you'll turn to some kind of externalism, religiously, formalism, legalism, mysticism, activism, that kind of stuff, which is, again— Within the religious sphere in Christ, it's a good that's not God, right? Should Christians have practices that they do formally and repetitively? Absolutely, but that's not what Christianity is, right? Should we seek God mystically and how he speaks to us and leads us? Absolutely, but that's not Christianity. Should we be active for things that we think are just and good in the world, even in the political sphere? Absolutely, but that's not Christianity. Do you understand? All these are externalisms, but they become the heart of your faith if you don't realize your heart is the heart of your faith and how Christ in the gospel relates to it directly. Does that make sense? You have to stand on the foundation of the gospel. That's what Mike preached about last week, right? And then the third thing is that you have to tend tend the fire of devotion. You have to tend the fire of devotion. Does that make sense? You have to do it. 
It's easy to think that our emotions are something that we experience passively. And to a certain extent, our emotions come up out of a place in us that we don't completely understand. They exert themselves with a lot of strength and power. Some of us more than others, right? And some of us are like super emotive. Some of us have our emotions pretty shut down. Neither one of those may be perfectly healthy, right? What's supposed to happen is there's supposed to be an even confluence within the human person where there's a full integration between our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because all of them are loving God entirely, situated under his gospel, related to his truth, attendant to his beauties, so that we are full-minded, right? As a, as a believer, if you've been a believer for a couple of years or more, you, you ought to have the experience that you're like, you know, Christianity kind of made me smarter. And I'm not saying Christians are smarter than other people. I'm just saying if you relate to all of the beauties of God in creation, and you find everything that he's ever done and said interesting, it will make you smarter. Do you understand? Because it will engage your whole mind in a way it wasn't engaged before. Does that make sense? Because it'll engage you in everything you were thinking about before, plus a lot more. The house with all the windows you used to look out of will now have skylights, and it will do something to your mind and how it functions, right? But it'll do it to your heart, too. It will—you'll start to deal with some of your hurts, and it'll open emotional places you have shut down. It'll— It'll point to the thankfulness we can have to God and his creative power beyond the thing itself. So we'll love the good and the God behind it. And that will raise our pleasures and affections towards the things that we care about and are interested in. There are ways in which God raises up the heart and the soul and makes us stronger in doing so. Does that make sense? Now, um, what that, what that, one of the things that we have to face in this though is, is that you cannot have a passive way of interacting with your emotional inner life, your heart. You can't be passive with your heart. You have to be active with your heart. Now, that does not mean that you should use your conscious mind to control and shut down your feelings in Jesus' name. That's not what I'm saying. That's what a lot of people think I'm saying. That's what a lot of pastors mean because that's what they've been doing their whole lives. You understand that pastors are not any more emotionally healthy than you, sadly. A lot of pastors get in this business because they want people to like them or because, you know, like people doing a psychology major because they want to deal with their own problems and then they'll help people kind of— like, there's, there's reasons why people get into this kind of work and a lot of people are preaching from places like this and I'm not saying that I'm not included in those people, okay? Um, who are not—they're not full-hearted. They're full-hearted in that they're 100% devoted. But the how much devotion they have is not that much, right? Um, John Stott said it this way in his book on being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, if you take an infant and that infant breathes in a full, full lungs of air, right? They're filled with air, as full as they could be, right? But when they're an adult and they breathe in their lungs full, they'll breathe in three or four times as much air or more, and their lungs will be full. It's not just an issue of fullness, it's an issue of capacity. And to learn to love God with all our hearts, God doesn't just want to fill your heart with 100% commitment or 100% of the, of the amount of love you can feel right now. He wants to mature and heal your heart so that your capacity to love increases dramatically. So when you love God with all your heart, it's way more than you're now experiencing in most, in most cases. And listen, if you believe we live under the curse, and the curse creates all kinds of hurts and harms and traumas and tragedies— then the idea that our hearts are feeling everything that they can feel <laughs> in a world where we sin against each other and we shut ourselves down to protect ourselves or we've been harmed or traumatized is crazy. A huge part of our Christian faith has to be to open our hearts to God. Not just to have a heart of flesh toward God rather than in sinful rebellion, but 
to ourselves and to each other and to life in general and to being. Right? In Romans 12, 11, it says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Right? He's—it's in a passage where, where the apostle is talking about how to really be spiritual, right? Romans 12, 1 says— talks about this is what it means to be spiritual. This is your spiritual act of service. This is what spirituality looks like. And then he goes through humility. That's the next thing he talks about. And then he talks about all the different things Christians should do in loving one another. And and in the midst of that, he says, listen, you guys, one of the things you need to make sure you're doing is to never be lacking in zeal. That is passion for God, desire, love, but keep up your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, right? Now, that's a really important point. Because just a few verses later, one of the things he's going to say is required of Christian life. If you're really going to be spiritual is you have to be able to—and this is an emotional thing. You have to be able to and be willing to and spontaneously rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. One of the things that emotionally annoys my family about living with me is um, I have um, SRF, right? Scowling resting face. Like I just— I'm always kind of like thinking about something or whatever, so I always—they're like, you just—Dad, you just—you just kind of always look mad. Like, even when you're telling a joke, you just like always look mad. And I'm like, I'm not mad. I'm not mad at all. I don't know what you mean. I'm I'm just—I'm angry you said that, but I'm not mad, you know? Um, And uh, and like one of the things that I'm very poor at as a father and as a husband and as a person is to spontaneously emotionally rejoice when people are happy and mourn when they're sad. It's—it's just—I have to like— you know, I have to like put in the program and write new code every time I'm doing it, right? It doesn't just—it doesn't just happen. And it's—and be- over the last several years, I've realized like that is a signal of my heart not being full. Like it's not healed. It's not—I'm not—my I'm, heart can be 100% devoted to God in all that I have in my heart, but my heart can still be shrunken, heartless. I can still be heartless. There's this verse in Lamentations that says— my people have become heartless like the ostrich. I was reading that this week. I was like, like an ostrich. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what I think of. When I think of heartlessness, I go, you're like an ostrich, man. Like, <laughs> and then it says, even the jackal lets the kits nurse. Right? So jackals are like, like they nip at each other and they bite. And they're like, they're, they, they look like they don't have a very good little society. Right? And they're like, in, the, in, in Jeremiah's writing limitations, like, like even— even the jackals let their pups drink their milk, right? But the—but see, here's what ostriches do. In the desert, at least, they, like, scratch open a hole, and they, like, lay their eggs in it, and then they cover it, and then they, like, lay decoy eggs and, um, that are just laying out on the sand, and then they leave. And so imagine seeing that as a human being where, like, this—this this, uh, ostrich kind of walks along, you know, and he's like, boop. And you're like, that is not a good mother. Right? It's just—there's no compassion. There's no heart. You know what I mean? And, and one of the things that God says in—now remember, Lamentations, how did they become heartless? From turning from God, from being idolaters, and then from being crushed and traumatized by being conquered. Right? Heartlessness, the, having no care even for anybody, the superlative of that, not even for your own children. Right? Can happen to the human heart. And we, we have to be the kind of people who are the opposite of that. That whenever somebody's happy, like, we are, like, immediately happy with them. There's a reciprocating nature between us. They're happy. We become happy. We respond with happiness. They're mourning. We're connected with them. We reciprocate with them. And they—we mourn with them. Because they matter, and our hearts allow us to go out to them in love. But how many times 
How many times have you had a friendship with somebody and they just did something that made that friendship cost something and it was just kind of easier to just warm up another friendship than to deal with that when you just kind of set them out to pasture? I mean, this is true among everybody. I see this especially among like younger people who've grown up with social media and they just like have all these little connections and like they're just like, you know, that, that person's just too much work. That person's toxic. That person—then they just—they just put people out to pasture. That's what—that's all friendships are, right? And I'm telling you, that's what friendships are to ostriches. Not to human beings who've been transformed by Christ to have full hearts. And you and I have to face this. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to listen to me talk about this for a while. You and I need to face this. Okay. We're gonna have to go through some things quickly because— Okay, so one of, one of the things that we need to, to think about is, can you take me to the slide with the three things that follow it? So, see if you can find that. Um, in pursuit of full-heartedness, we're going to have to be focused on graciousness, right? Which means— um, we, sometimes we call it high point gracious striving. We are going to work with all our hearts, right? We, we're going to pursue God with everything we've got. It's a very energetic, sweaty work, and yet it's gracious. That is, it only works because of God. God gave us the opportunity to do it. He is working it out as our divine Father. He has purchased it for us in the death and resurrection of His Son. He has promised and assured us of its end because of the resurrection of Christ, and He has given us His Spirit to live in and with us right now to make us possible to walk through it. Do you understand? But— it doesn't take anything away from how hard we work. It just means our working doesn't save us. Our working doesn't make us any better. But we still have to pursue God, right? So like, if you think about a fire, a fire produces way more warmth and light than you do work to keep it going. But you still have to feed it, and you're still going to feed it. Like, you don't cut off your body parts and throw them in the fire. Like, you put wood in the fire. Like, this is wood for my house. And like, I didn't make this. I cut it and I split it, but I didn't make this. The forest grew it. And then I put this in the fire rather than like my hair. And then I sit by the fire and I get warm and I get light, right? And there's some Christians or people who want to be Christians or claim to be Christians who want God to make their emotional life function just the way they've dreamed. And they are unwilling to just load the wood. They want God to do literally everything. Not give them everything they need, but they want in immaturity and childishness, childishness, to literally have God do everything, okay? And so I want to take a few minutes. Probably just listen to two sermons, but we have a schedule to keep. Um, and talk about how this is done. And I want to say the way, the way we engage our hearts in this as believers is, is one way to think about this is think about it kind of in three time frames. One is the immediate. What's going on in our hearts this second? The second is the, the, what I'd call the middle distance, which is like over the course of a few weeks or months. And then the long distance, which is the formation of your character over time. Okay, so the first one is just that you have to attend to the devotional state of your heart. So what is the state of your heart right now? Part of being a believer is to recognize that <clears throat> um, at most moments, because you live in a dangerous, difficult world in which sin is affecting you, and because you have what the Bible calls the flesh inside of you, that is a part of you that doesn't want to submit to God, but do whatever it wants— the human heart is naturally going to experience, at most moments, a kind of turbulence, a certain kind of tornness. And the state that God wants to give 
is what the Bible calls the peace of God. Now, the peace of God is not that everything's fine. The peace of God is that in that inner tumultuous place of the heart where all the faculties come together, there is a reigning of a certain kind of tranquility. Right? You can imagine a castle that's getting attacked viciously from the outside, but because of the stone walls inside, you can hear singing. Right? That state, what the Bible calls the peace of God, is not achieved through just mindfulness, knowing how you feel and why you feel it. Right? Mindfulness does not have sufficient resources. Now, listen, I'm not against that. Like, if you're like a psychologist, you work in the schools, and you're supposed to teach mindfulness, it's fine. I think it's completely insufficient for human flourishing, but it's better than nothing. Okay? Mindfulness is essentially the, the capacity to be mindful of what's going on in you. And by knowing what's going on in you, you're not totally subject to how it will play you so that you can be like, oh, this is why I'm feeling this way. This is, this is what's going on inside of me. Okay, great. What God wants to do is to do that and then give you the additional resources of himself in his truths and his promises and his securities. He wants to add to the mindfulness of conviction and discernment, right? Knowing what's wrong with us and knowing what's really happening. He wants to add to that the addition of his very great and precious promises. The ability by the Spirit participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world. His desire is to give you additional resources so that when—because here's the problem. What's going to happen, Christianly speaking, if you become truly mindful? You really know what's going on inside of you, right? What you're going to find is, is that you are a—you're a, going to find wretchedness. That's what you're going to find, to quote Romans chapter 7. You're going to find that you're wicked and that you're weak. That's what you're going to find. That you're really not up to everything that's going on around you, and that you're not really a good person. Now, there's a certain kind of mindfulness that allows you to blame other people, right? As you're like, oh, why am I feeling this way? Oh, it's because my dad treated me this way, right? But that—see, that's my—that is mindfulness, because you may be doing something because your dad treated you that way, but you still are choosing to do that. You've been cooperating with that for years. Like, you haven't dealt with it and reconstructed it. Like, you, that's your fault. And now you're unleashing it on somebody else, and you've been unleashing it on people for years. Right? See, nobody wants that kind of mindfulness. <laughs> that's like, that's like varsity. That's like, I, listen, I didn't sign up for four, mindfulness 406. I signed up for mindfulness 101, the one that makes me feel better. Right? But you see, what, what God wants to do is actually bring you to a mindfulness that allows you to see your wretchedness. Because what it'll make you do is it'll make you call out for momentary grace. That's what it'll do. And seeing the turbulence in your soul and seeing your own wretchedness, your weakness and your wickedness, and how you just aren't going to be the person you need to be this moment without the help of God himself, that your nature needs the perfecting power of grace and the Spirit of God, that can lead you in humility to turn to God and say, God, I need help. Help me be the person I need to be in this moment. Help me to forgive. Help me to deal with my anger and not unleash on other people. Help me to, help me to be who I need to be. Help me to be the kind of person who loves. Help me to, be to live full-hearted in this moment, not selfishly and in a fleshly way, right? So, the things we do for that, and you can look at this um, later, too, if you want to look at it more, but one is you have to seek a moment-by-moment -moment devotional frame. Like, the, the, that's what the Puritans called it, of like a frame of consciousness, a frame of mind, to be in a place of peace already when things happen to you. Because you're going to walk through life, and people are going to bump you, right? And you need to—it's very helpful if you're already in a frame of relying on God moment-by-moment moment in a place of humility, recognizing your wretchedness without Him, but your full sonship or daughtership in Him. If you start there in the morning, walking through the day, in your car after you get out of that store, whatever it is, if you, if you exert being in that frame consistently, then when you're bumped, you're already half ready. See? And it's also, over time, enjoyable just to be in that state 
a state of the peace of God reigning in your heart, and to be conscious of God at every moment, right? It's a long-term spiritual discipline that will build its way into your character if you give yourself to it moment by moment. But then also, you have to take responsibility for the turmoil in your heart. You can't be passive about it or only half mindful about it. And then third, you've got to discern the inner ter- turmoil and temptation. What's really going on? You have to discern it clearly, and then let that lead you not to wretchedness, that is despair and shame, but to the open arms of asking God for his momentary day-to-day grace. Remember, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't ask them to pray for 15 years. He, he asked them to pray to God each day for the grace for that day. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us have something to eat right now, right? And Jesus said in Matthew 6, every day, every day has enough trouble of its own. You don't have to think about the future too much beyond just to do your duty, right? All right, I'm going to do these other two quickly because the 25 minutes is over, okay? The second is you need to tend to the devotional condition of your heart. By condition, I mean over a period of time. It's not immediate, but it's not forever. It's like a few weeks, months, a year, right? That is, you need to attend to the devotional condition. I use, I'm using the word devotional advisedly here because if, if, I, if I just use the word emotional, most of us just think whatever I'm feeling right now, right? And one of the slides here that you could go back and look at says, you can't always choose your emotion, but you can always choose devotion. You can't always choose your emotion, but you can always choose devotion. Devotion is to take the faculties of your emotions and to point them to the goods that you know exist. Not by denying the feelings that you have, but by taking those feelings that do exist and acknowledging them, welcoming them, and then pointing them to the God that you know exists in his promises and goodness. Does that make sense? So for example, if you feel really angry because you feel really insecure, you don't say, well, God is God in heaven. I don't need to feel insecure. And just shut that down. What you do is you're like, no, I feel terrible. (laughs) I feel like a jerk. I feel completely inadequate to do this job. I feel like I'm blowing it as a man or whatever it is for you, right? And you're like, and like, and I'm not going to shut that down. Like, that's how I feel. But in that feeling of what could be wretchedness, I know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm just taking you through Romans 7 and 8 right now. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am called, remade in Christ to be a son of God. The law of the Spirit can work in me rather than the Spirit of the law that condemns me. And I can receive the momentary grace I need to walk with Christ in the midst of whatever I feel, right? And I can experience now the peace of God, which transcends understanding, right? The difference between shutting down your emotions with your religion and bringing your emotions to the truths of God in Christ are—could not be more different. It's the difference between trying to train a dog— and, like, hold one down forever. Right? So, some of the ways—so, what's going on with the medium is that you're a spiritual organism that needs to be cared for. That's the fundamental here. Right? So, you wouldn't—if you never exercised and didn't eat and were in very bad health in a few weeks, and you were like, I don't know what's going on. I just feel terrible. Right? People would think you were a little daft. They'd be—they'd be like, well, you know, if you slept, and if you ate, and if you exercised— you'd feel a lot better, you know? Just, just unplug the Wi-Fi, you know? Because what you're doing is you're sinning against your being, like your, your embodiedness as a human, if you don't do the basic ne- things needed to tend yourself as a creature. Does that make sense? And I don't think that's counting down, guys, and that's going to be bad. Um, so what needs to happen is you need to realize, as a human being, as a spiritual organism— that your body and soul and heart needs to be fed and cared for in certain ways, or it falls into disrepair. Like, for example, if, you're, if you just don't sleep enough, or you don't eat, and then you try to pray, and you've got, like, low blood sugar, 
the, pr- the emotional heartfelt praying can go really bad because your body feels crappy. Does that make sense? Right? It, it's not, God didn't change, right? God wasn't like super real when you had just drank like a sugar coffee, and then he became unreal when you didn't sleep and ate nothing for the morning, right? You're saying? Like, like how, what we eat, our posture, what we do, all that stuff affects how we feel and how we think in our hearts, right? Now that's also true in your psychology, your consciousness, and your heart itself needs care. It needs to be fed, right? And so we, we talk about this in terms of devotions or fellowship, that there are things Christians do to feed the heart, right? One is, is don't get your body working against your heart. Like, don't sin against yourself as a human being. If you sleep and eat and rest and do certain things like that, it'll help you be in a good frame emotionally. But in addition to that, you need more than that. You need what I call the practices of direct devotion. That is, you need to, in your consciousness or in your heart, attend directly to God. There's no substitute for that. There's no substitute. You can't listen to enough sermons or, or do enough secondary kinds of things, learning about God, to affect your heart sufficiently. You have to attend to God himself. You have to close your eyes if you need to, or kneel, or stand, whatever. You, but you need to pray to God himself as a being and person who is there from the heart. You need to open your heart when you do it. You need to, when you come to church, you need to give your heart to God directly in worship. When we sing a couple worship songs in just a minute, like, you need to yourself, in your consciousness, attend directly to the being of God himself in your consciousness, whether you feel anything in addition to that, and give your heart fully to God. There is no substitute for direct devotion. None. You can read the Bible the rest of your life if you don't do it attending devotionally directly to God and reading his word, it it will not do for you what devotion will. You must attend to God. And you know that your spiritual life is going poorly when you keep avoiding that. You come to church, you'll read the Bible sometimes. You maybe you'll watch a YouTube video of somebody saying something religious, and you're like, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm in there. No, no, no. When you're in your car, do you want to talk to God, or do you turn on the radio immediately, or or whatever you listen to? Or do you, like when you, when you wake up, do you want to talk to God? Or do you want to just get doing stuff? Do you, do you sit down for your devotional time? Do you just jump to the thing that's the least directly attending to God? Right. And then in addition to those direct participations, devotion, prayer, worship, there's also the, the ways that we heat each other up, right? From being in fellowship and in union with each other, we support each other's faith, right? I don't have time to get into that much now. And the last is to work with the development of your heart. And this is where we'll end today because um, I don't know how long I've gone over, but it's a while. Um, That is, over the course of your life, you want your heart and your inner life to develop. So like that baby, you don't just, you're not just taking those really quick little breaths. Your heart's full, but there's no very little, your lungs are full, but there's very little spiritual lungs there. Most of us in, in, in the world in which we worship consumption and government, and we worship immediate sense experience, and we worship who's up and who's down, and who took the nicest Instagram photo, and blah, 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 freaking blah. Okay, it's just disgustingly, it's disgustingly earth-licking how we live. And that's, that's developing us as human beings in a certain kind of way. We're becoming thinner, shallower kinds of people. We give up on relationships immediately. We have very little perseverance. We're just not really ready to fight what we should fight. We're ready to fight at the drop of the hat for things we shouldn't fight about. We have no capacity for civility when things get difficult. Like, we're we're like, we're ostriches. 
you understand? Heart-wise. And there's a structure to that of our society, and we're becoming—it's it's like we're growing up as kids, and our heart—our lungs aren't growing. Imagine if you were a doctor, and you were taking care of one of my children, and my child was growing, but their lungs weren't growing with their body. I don't know if there's a condition called that, but like, that doesn't sound good, does it? Right? Because it's just—that system isn't going to keep up with human development. Spiritually speaking, our hearts have to expand as we grow. They have to. Because our hearts are going to be huge in heaven. They're going to have to be. Because there's going to be so much to take in. But listen, there's so much to take in now. You were made for love deeper than you've probably ever yet felt. You were made for wonder and a sublimeness and just walking outside than you hardly ever feel. Like, you, like we, we have no idea what we were meant to take in. And it's partly because demonically and by the flesh in all kinds of ways, we have accepted a structure to our lives and its developmental effect that makes us so thin and weak and brittle, and we have no idea what we're missing out on. We have little moments where our hearts feel full when we watch like the ending of some show, and we're like, oh, that touched me. You're like, there's nothing in you to touch. Right? And the long view is the pursuit of the deeper things of life in God and in everything, so that as human beings we become increasingly deep things. There is a well in your soul that is poisoned and it's not hewn out. And you got to get in there and you got to get wet and you got to dig out all the junk and the dead animals and you got to throw them away and burn them and you got to get the chisel and you got to hew out a deeper well by living in the moment with Jesus in the moment, seeking the peace of God momentarily, by feeding your soul and heart in the middle term, repetitively, as you need as an organism to function, and by pursuing in the long term, the long development of your soul, so that your heart will be like the heart of Jesus that can take in the universe, and all its cares, and all its hurts, and all its wonders. Do not settle <laughs> for a salvation this big. In one sense, the forgiveness of your sins in Christ's death and resurrection is a salvation as big as the universe, okay? It, it, is, um, it is an immense thing. It is, it is uncalculable. You have never yet felt the wonder of it because your, our hearts are so small. Okay? But, but even that huge thing, when shrunk to take its proportional place in all of salvation, is a tiny thing! It's so small to all that God has made, all that he has given, all that he has created, all the wonders that there are. Like, think about the scuba diver that goes, like, into these— incredibly dark caves, and they shine their light, and they find a tropical fish with a hundred colors on them. The wonders of God are hidden like that in all of creation, in the human heart, in all relationships, in moments, and we just don't—we don't have the capacity. Our, our radar is so broken that we don't have the sixth sense to see it, and because of that, we live so unhappily. And so we need a God-sized state and a God-sized corporation to please us because we're so sick. You could be pleased by a blade of grass for an eternity. And Jesus wants to give that to you. God, as we, as we sing these next two songs, we pray that you'd help us in the immediate moment to find the peace of God, real peace in you by attending to you directly, and by, by loving you and by directing ourselves to you. And I pray also that you'd help us to choose in the middle distance to attend to you regularly and to 
read the scriptures devotionally and to worship you directly and to pray to you consistently as, as that middle caring for the heart. And I pray that over the long term that you would shape us profoundly and hew out a well of, uh, in us to receive the water of your life so that our hearts would be full in ways that we have not yet imagined. We just have not experienced. And I pray for the people listening, watching online, in this room, and people who have not yet come to you at all, people that we bump into every day, I, I pray that you would, you'd reach us, you'd touch us, you'd lead us in all of these steps. And I pray that you'd help us to not feel like this is just a momentary lapse if we felt something here and be like, oh, I let church do something to me. I pray that you'd help us to realize that that was the real moment. That was the real thing. That's the thing that's been hidden from our eyes. And I pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart to it. In Jesus' name, amen.